let's uh, pray for God's help as we come to his word. Father God, we do thank you that you are the God that speaks, the God who speaks truth, uh, and the words you give us are life uh, and good for us to hear and to understand. So Father, we pray tonight uh, through your word you would help us uh, to listen, to focus and to understand. May your spirit work powerfully to convict us of the truth, to renew our minds and to conform us to the image of Christ. Father, please help me in my weakness to speak clearly and faithfully as I should so that you would be glorified. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we live in a time that uh, reality TV rules our screens. Uh, here are the five most watched TV shows, or five of the top ten most watched TV shows last year. Married at First Sight, My Kitchen Rules, The Block, and The Voice. Any fans of any of those? Oh, you're too ashamed because you're at church. Oh, no, no, Clarissa, she's good. All right. Uh, what do all these shows have in common, whether it's a, a kitchen or a construction site? Drama. Uh, since, become, uh, since marrying an architect, the block has been a regular feature of my life, uh, and every week, without fail, the same phrase is said, we are not going to finish. And it's the same on all the cooking shows. And so we get gripped, not with good cooking, not with design and style, but with drama. Drama of whether these contestants will finish the task or not. The show is really built on the tension of these contestants with their lack of skill and everything going wrong. Will the unachievable task be achieved? We seem to love the thrill of it. This was perfectly exemplified about two weeks ago on House Rules when two dance teachers beat the two tradies to win. But if ever there was a group of unskilled and unqualified people with a seemingly unachievable job, it was Jesus' first disciples. Uh, in John 14 to 16, he is preparing them for his departure. It's the night before his crucifixion and he's just promised them in John 14 verse 12 that they are going to do greater things than him. They are going to be entrusted with the task of carrying on the work and mission of Jesus after he's gone. But that's actually pretty concerning when you think about it. What have we seen from the disciples so far? Judas will betray Jesus. Peter's going to deny him three times. Thomas is a doubter and confused. Philip is frustrated and let's be honest, he's kind of whiny. But on, on top of that, within hours of this conversation that Jesus is having with them, Jesus is going to get arrested and they will all abandon him and he will go to the cross alone. It certainly seems like they have an unachievable task. Uh, last week, in the first 14 verses of John chapter 14, Jesus has assured the disciples and us that his death on the cross is absolutely sufficient for our eternal security. He alone is the way, the truth, and the life. He alone can give us a place in God's house forever. But having promised that they will do greater works after his departure, Jesus now focuses on the coming work of the Holy Spirit, who is utterly sufficient 
for our faithfulness, usefulness and joy in this world while we wait for Jesus to return. So the theme of the passage continues from last week. It's comfort. Jesus isn't making a mistake in leaving. He isn't abandoning us. We have all we need through the Spirit to know him and to live for him. And this is very comforting. If you've been a Christian for more than five minutes, you'll know that living for Jesus is actually a real struggle. Stopping sin, not living like the world, embracing Jesus' example of selfless service and proclaiming Christ to an unbelieving world can feel unachievable. And so Jesus promises that the Spirit will come and be with us forever. If you've got your Bibles open, verse 15. If you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. Jesus promises that he's going to ask his Father to send another advocate who will help, who will be with the disciples forever. And both those words, another and advocate, are important for understanding the Holy Spirit and helpfully clarify our language when speaking about the Holy Spirit too. Firstly, advocate, it translates the Greek word parakletos. uh, And it's actually quite a tricky word. It doesn't really have an English equivalent and therefore has been translated in lots of different ways. Comforter, helper, friend, counsellor and so on. The word literally just means to call alongside and it was used at the time in Greek uh, for a legal assistant. So the Holy Spirit is being described as one who comes alongside us. He comes to encourage and guide us in knowing God through Jesus. So any of the words are kind of suitable to translate for parakletos as long as it's understood within the legal context. The Spirit is the one who comes. And he is described not just as an advocate, but as another advocate, suggesting that one has come beforehand. Uh, The word paraclete is only used in one other place in the New Testament outside of John 14 to 16, and it's by John in his first letter, 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, speaking about Jesus. He is our advocate who stands before God to secure our forgiveness. So the Holy Spirit comes to replace the presence of Jesus with the disciples, but he is suitable because he is one like Jesus. The Holy Spirit, therefore, is not a force, nor is the Holy Spirit impersonal. The Spirit is a he, not an it. Verse 17 shows us that. The world cannot accept him. He is a person. He speaks. He can be grieved. The Holy Spirit is another, like Jesus, part of the Trinity, the Godhead. And he is to be revered as God himself. Uh, We see this in Acts 5, the references in your handout, where if you lie to the Spirit, you are lying to God. Christians have actually understood this from the beginning. We sang it earlier tonight, the Creed, which is based on the words of the Apostles' Creed. This is how the Nicene Creed summarizes what Christians believe. I believe in the Holy Spirit, 
the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and Son is worshipped and glorified. The Holy Spirit is the third member of the Trinity, the Godhead. And he is called here the Spirit of Truth, because like Jesus, as God himself, he is truth. But in the context of John 14, verse 6, that we heard last week, the main work of the Spirit here is to point people to the truth of Jesus. So Jesus is about to leave. This is great assurance for the disciples. To have the Spirit is to have Jesus. His coming is God's presence with them. He will guide them, protect, sustain and encourage them as they participate in the greater works Jesus has called them to do. And that is true for all believers. So although Jesus is about to leave, the Spirit will be with them forever. To know Jesus and to receive the Spirit is to never be alone, but to live in God's presence forever, not just the future, but now too. And his presence in our lives is sufficient for us to know Jesus and to live for him. The world, however, verse 17, cannot accept the spirit for it neither sees him or knows him. Uh, Our world is materialistic by nature uh, and it's quite sceptical of anything it cannot see. But it's important to remember in John's gospel, the world is not so much a place but a kind of people. The world is humanity in rebellion against God. And so as God comes to dwell in and with his people, the world will not accept the Spirit. For if the world, that is those who rebel against God, were to receive the Spirit, they would cease to be the world. The Spirit, God's presence, comes to our world to believers in Jesus. And that is great reassurance of his presence and his power. Jesus was with the disciples. The Spirit will be with the disciples. But with an important distinction. Verse 17, he lives with you and will be in you. The Spirit does not come just to dwell among us, but in us. Isn't that profound? God himself dwells in every believer. God lives in you if you are a Christian. This is actually a reality that changes everything for the Christian. We are not alone. Nothing can happen to us without God being present and in control. It means that in any and every struggle you have, God is not just there, but working within you. Philippians 2 verse 13 says this, For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Christians have nothing to fear, nothing to worry about, for Jesus is promising that he will ask his Father to send the Spirit and he will come, not just to be with us, but in us. That's a lot to take in. And I think it was a lot for the disciples to grasp in the midst of their distress at the thought of Jesus leaving them. 
And so, having promised that the Spirit is going to come, he adds further comfort. Not only will the Spirit come, so will Jesus. Verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Uh, This is, I think, quite tricky to work out what Jesus means here. When he says, I will come, does he mean that after he will come after he's risen from the dead, so after his resurrection? Does he mean that in the coming of the Spirit, he himself is coming? Or does he mean he will come in the sense of his second coming after he has ascended into heaven? It's tricky to work out, I think. But the focus in the context seems primarily on a promise to these disciples that he's talking to, that he will appear to them after his resurrection. Verse 19 suggests this, Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. And we know that's what happened. Having died and then risen from the dead, just as Jesus promised he would, it was the vindication and confirmation that all he had said was trustworthy, but he did all of that, not to everybody, but to his disciples. Yes, he appeared to more, but they did in fact see him. And having died and now risen, Jesus is the risen king and his resurrection changed everything for the disciples but for all history. Verse 19, he says, because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in the father, you are in me and I am in you. It's quite loaded language, I think. Jesus rose from the dead, just as he said, proving, confirming to everybody that he is trustworthy and that God especially was at work in and through Jesus to save. And because Jesus lives now as king, he says those who trust him will live. That is, they have true life that lasts forever in relationship with God. But then what Jesus says at the end of verse 20, I think he actually has more in mind. Look at verse 20. He says, As they see the risen Jesus, they will realize not just that Jesus is one with the Father, but that the disciples are in him and that he is in them. I think he's saying that the resurrection, it vindicates Jesus as God's faithful servant. It is the public declaration that Jesus was right. But it also guarantees a personal relationship with him, even though he ascends into heaven. Christ comes to his disciples as the risen Lord, and it is a sign and a guarantee that he comes to all believers through the Holy Spirit. It's why, I think, in Colossians 1, Paul says to all believers who haven't seen Jesus, just like us, that Christ is in them and it's the hope of glory, Colossians 1.27. Why, it's why Paul prays in Ephesians 3 that Christ would dwell in the hearts of all believers by faith. So although the world cannot see him or accept him, and although it might seem odd and strange to them, all believers should be confident that Christ is with us and in us through the Holy Spirit. Christ died, 
Christ rose, Christ appeared. We are not orphans. We are not alone. Christ is in us. And so if you're a Christian here tonight, is that how you think about being Christian? Is Christ in you a reality that gives you joy and confidence every day? Is it reassuring you? Is it comforting you when you feel alone or small or weak? And is Christ in you motivating how you live your holiness? I think Paul picks up this language. He says, shall I take my body where Christ dwells and unite it with a prostitute? He says, I would never do that. And so for the Christian, Christ is in you. Shall you then go and sleep with your boyfriend or girlfriend or watch pornography? With Christ in me, shall I slander or gossip or cheat or steal or be selfish with Christ in me? That is our reality. But I think if we're honest, we know that this perspective is actually very hard to maintain. We are quick to forget. We're easily distracted. Sin looks very appealing. And so we struggle. And so Jesus moves from the comfort of the Spirit being with us and in us to now focus on the work of the Spirit as our teacher. Uh, Jesus called the Holy Spirit the Spirit of truth in verse 17, and then he picks that language up again in verse 25. He says, All this I have spoken while still with you. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. I don't know what your experience uh, in the church or in Christianity has been when talking about the Holy Spirit. Uh, If we do talk about the Holy Spirit at all, often the focus seems to be primarily on experiences, whether it's spiritual gifts or healing, for example. Yet as Jesus speaks of the Holy Spirit here, his primary work is to point us to Jesus. All he said and done, the Holy Spirit is a teacher. But we must avoid, I think, a common mistake when reading the Bible in this passage. It is not about us. I'm sure if I was to put up a photo of the whole congregation right now, the first thing you would do is look for yourself. There I am. There's 150 other people in the photo, but there I am. This passage is not about you. It's not about me. Uh, When Jesus promises that the Spirit will remind the disciples of everything Jesus has said, it's a promise to these specific disciples. The Holy Spirit is going to come on them, those eyewitnesses who were with Jesus, to help and guide them to both remember and grasp the significance of Christ's life, death and resurrection. Uh, The work of the Spirit is to remind them of what they've seen and heard already. This is telling us how the apostles both remembered and recorded not just what Jesus said and did, but understood its significance. John has actually modelled this to us already in his gospel. If you've got your Bibles open, just turn back to John chapter 12. Uh, Jesus has just entered Jerusalem riding on the donkey. They're all praising him. And then in John chapter 12, verse 16, this is what Jesus says. Sorry, what John says. At first, 
His disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realise that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. So for us, we are seeing the fulfilment of this promise and the fruit of the Spirit's work in their lives as we read the New Testament, our Bibles. What they wrote down in here is not just a collection of nice memories, but the work of the Spirit, as Peter would describe, carrying them along to write down a faithful account of what Jesus said and did. So you should not be ashamed of your Bible. It is a gift from God and evidence of his faithfulness to preserve the truth of the gospel so that more might come to find life in Jesus. The Spirit works through the writings of the apostles. And so we also rely on the Spirit to open our eyes and ears today to understand what he is saying through the Bible to trust Jesus. Uh, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 2 that no one can know or understand God without the Holy Spirit. He goes on in chapter 12 to say that no one can confess Jesus as Lord except by the Spirit. So our, our dependence on the Holy Spirit to teach us should drive us to the Bible, where the Spirit has worked to record words that bring us life as they point us to Jesus. The Bible is the sword of the Spirit, Ephesians 6. And it's how the Holy Spirit continues to speak to us today. We see that. There's some references in your handout. Hebrews 3, Hebrews 10. The Holy Spirit speaks through the Bible. God is speaking to us tonight through the Spirit in his word. So we must be people who seek the Spirit's work by giving ourselves to know God's word. Uh, John Calvin, he says this, The Holy Spirit cannot be separated from his truth, which he has expressed in Scripture. This means that the Holy Spirit shows his power only when we give Scripture the reverence and dignity that belong to it. And yet, how common is it for Christians to long for clarity, wisdom, guidance from God, yet neglect their Bibles. It's so available to us. We have the Bibles on our shelves, even on our phones. Yet so often we long for wisdom from God, but never open his word. Uh, when I was still working as a chef a long time ago, uh, I can vividly remember a conversation with Neil, our senior pastor, that I think both convicted and ultimately changed me. Uh, he said this, the quote's on the screen. He says, We have the opportunity to be rich, but we are poor and remain poor because we neglect the great treasure that is given to us. That is God's word and the Holy Scriptures. Through the Bible, the Spirit speaks to us. He renews our minds, changes our perspective, encourages and grows us. 
So, if you're a Christian here tonight, are you investing time and energy to know God's word as a treasure to behold? Because as God's word is in our minds and our heart, it is no wonder that peace is what follows. Back in our passage, verse 27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give it as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Our world, I think, loves the idea of peace. But at its very best, the world can only ever wish peace. It cannot give it. The peace the world offers is often the absence of conflict, which is won by sword or strength. But Jesus gives a peace through his own death And it's a peace that is so much better than anything the world offers. Peace, or what the Old Testament would call shalom, is fullness. It's flourishing because of an intimate relationship with God. A relationship with God who is good and generous, kind, but also powerful and in control. And Jesus has been clear in John chapter 14 that we know God through him and now through the coming of the Spirit. And so if you are not yet a follower of Jesus here tonight, the reality and promise of Jesus is that he gives peace, a peace the world you will not get from them, a peace that cannot be found anywhere else because the peace that Jesus gives is actually a contentment, a confidence that rules our hearts irrespective of our circumstances because we know God. Jesus is about to say in John chapter 16, he says, I have told you these things, that is about his impending departure, his death and resurrection, so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So if you're a believer, do you have this peace? The peace of knowing the sovereign good God personally. Now again, that is a lot to take in. You will have trouble, but you have peace. And the disciples of Jesus faced real trouble in this world. Perhaps many of you know this. For the disciples that Jesus is speaking to, uh, we know that most of them suffered immensely and were actually killed for their faith. And so as he points them to his imminent death, he does so to give them confidence of this peace. Verse 28, You heard me say, I am going away and and coming back to you. If you loved me, you would be glad that I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. I have told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. Uh, Jesus wants them to be clear that when they see him nailed to a cross in absolute agony and humiliation... He wants them to know that everything is happening exactly as he said it would, so that when it happens, they would not worry, but actually have cause to trust him. 
But more than that, he says he wants them to be glad he's going to the Father because the Father is greater than he is. Now, he's not saying that God the Father is more God than him. But within the Trinity, the relationship between Father, Son and Spirit, there is an order. The Son does what his Father's will is. Jesus obeys his Father. And so as Jesus dies, the Father will then raise the Son to vindicate him and prove to the world that Jesus really did the will of God. And so as Jesus ascends to heaven at the right hand of his Father, it's a sign of his victory and finished work that brings glory to the Father. And Jesus says if we love him, we should want that to happen. We should want him to return to the Father. For that is both why Jesus has come, but also a clear sign that the peace he offers has been secured. So although as Jesus is nailed to the cross by all appearances, it will look like weakness and failure, Jesus says it's actually his triumph. Verse 30, I will not say much more to you, for the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold over me, but he comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father commanded me. Now, it's one thing to say you know what's going to happen in the future or that you will do something in the future. It is completely different, though, to say that you will use the absolute best efforts of your enemy to bring them about. Jesus on the cross will look like the devil, the prince of this world, has won. He rules this world, humanity, in opposition to God. And through his best efforts with wicked men, they will crucify the innocent Jesus. But in reality, he is only serving God's plan to glorify himself through the Son. Isn't that amazing? He will think he is winning by having Jesus killed, but he is only serving God's purposes. On the cross, the world will learn that Jesus loves the Father and willingly obeys him. And as he does that, it brings us peace. So on the cross, Jesus not only wins that peace, but shows us that he and his father can be absolutely trusted. And so as we face trouble in this world, we must constantly turn to God and remember and enjoy this peace. Uh, Paul says in Philippians, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Peace is embraced as we turn to Jesus, who is near us and in us by the Spirit. But if you've been paying attention, you'll know that we've actually missed a pretty key aspect of this passage. Jesus has been talking about the comfort and peace he gives us through the Spirit all in the context of our love for him. 
The question Jesus has for all those who will come and trust him and wait for his return is, do you love me? Verse 15, where we started. If you love me, you will keep my commands. Uh, In verse 22, we meet a guy named Judas who is unfortunately named. So John just clarifies, it's not the Judas you're thinking of, it's another one. Judas comes and says, if if Jesus is going to reveal himself through the Spirit, why does he do it in a kind of small, specific way? Why not to the whole world? To which Jesus answers in verse 23, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them and we will come to them and make our home among them. And then the same reality is given in the negative in verse 24. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. Jesus is saying here that obeying him is the diagnostic for whether you love him. Your life, your obedience, shows where your heart is. Verse 21, Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. Love for Jesus is demonstrated by the way you live. And so as Jesus prepares his disciples for life without him here physically, life where the Spirit comes to indwell them and teach them, that life of waiting for his return must be marked by obedience. Verse 15 is not a command, it's a statement of reality. Love obeys. And it doesn't obey out of some begrudging duty. It's the outworking of a relationship centred on love. That's what we've been seeing in John's Gospel, right? Back in chapter 13, Jesus washes his disciples' feet, a great act of love which pointed them to a greater act where he will die on the cross in our place to secure our forgiveness. He loves us at great cost to himself, then calls us to love him and our love will be seen in obedience. And because he loved us first, because his love has been clearly demonstrated, Christians are confident that what he commands us to do will actually be good for us. Uh, John says in his first letter, chapter 5, in fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. You've probably heard the famous saying, if you love your job, you'll never work a day in your life. I think it's true. We don't have to be told or compelled to do the things we love. When I get home, I don't have to be told, go and spend time with your son. I can't wait to do it. When I finish work on Monday, I don't think, oh, no, the bachelor's on and I'm going to have to watch it. I want to. You do too. We know Jesus. We know his character and his love for us. We must be confident that what he commands will be good for us. After all, he made us, he knows us, he knows what's best. So to obey Jesus really is to embrace joy that he's offering us. 
Because Jesus is saying here that as we love and obey him, our obedience actually increases our awareness and our enjoyment of his love. Verse 21, The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Verse 23, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Our obedience increases our intimacy, not our security. It increases our intimacy in our relationship with God. It's how we draw near to God to know and enjoy him. And so, do you love Jesus? And if you say you love Jesus, is it seen in your life? Would those who know you well say you love Jesus? I think this is really clarifying for us too. If God feels distant or absent in your life, if his word doesn't seem to speak to you at all, if being Christian or maybe even trying to be Christian has just been ultimately disappointing, if you find his commands are just a burden, then in reality we are not seeing him rightly. The fault is not his, but ours. And so are you taking Jesus' commands seriously, but also not just some of them? Love for Jesus is expressed by doing all he says, not some of it. Are you taking his call seriously to be baptised, or are you just putting it off because ultimately it's your decision and no one can tell you to do it? What about his call to love one another as he has loved you, to be hospitable? to flee sexual immorality, to speak the truth in love, to meet regularly with his people, to give generously to the work of the gospel, to serve. Is love for Jesus seen in your obedience, not selective obedience, but actually the pursuit of enjoying God more? Uh, I think one of the reasons that reality TV shows are so enthralling and keep us sucked in is although 80% of the show might be drama and we won't finish, they pretty much always do. And we get the happy ending that we all enjoy. The unachievable task is achieved and we get to celebrate it. But in reality, living God's way is an unachievable task if left to our own strength and ability. But as God works in us by the Spirit, the unachievable task is achievable. Not all at once, maybe not as quickly as you would like, but slowly and surely he changes us. Because for some of us, I imagine reflecting even right now on your loving obedience to Jesus can be very unsettling. Most of us know, I'm sure, that in our best moments, our love for Jesus is short-lived and so inconsistent. 
And so we need to remember the context in which Jesus gives the diagnostic of loving obedience. It's in the coming of the Spirit who will help and remind and encourage and grow us. Reflecting on our obedience is a test worth taking because it will draw us closer to God to ask for help. The coming of the Spirit is comfort and peace for Christians as God makes his home in us while we wait for Jesus to take us home. And so as Jesus calls us to examine our love and obedience, it is not to shame or guilt, but an invitation to draw closer to him and embrace what he has given us. Uh, In his first letter, John says this, The one who keeps God's commands lives in him, and he in them. This is how we know that he lives in us, because we obey him. No, that's not what it says. We know that he lives in us by the spirit he gave us. We see this same reality in the Lord's Supper. We are called to examine our lives, our obedience. But we do it as we partake in a meal that points us to love already given. So what does your life say about your love for Jesus? The call tonight is not to be paralysed by failure or guilt, but to cry out to God with confidence that he's with you. He is in you and working by his spirit. Pray that he would show you more of Jesus. Pray he'd change your desire. Pray he'd increase your love. We are not alone. We are not abandoned. The Holy Spirit has come with us in us forever, giving us peace. If you want to grow in your understanding, be transformed in your living, deepen your joy in Jesus and be effective in his mission for his glory, Jesus has given you the spirit and he is sufficient. His presence and work is all we need while we wait for Jesus and he will come. And until then, we should cry out to God with the same confidence the psalmist does. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you are the God who reveals yourself and continues to speak through your word, through your spirit. We thank you for the spirit that he is both with us and in us forever, teaching, guiding, working to change us. Please convict us tonight of how wonderful that is. We are not alone. And please work in us that our love for Jesus would be seen in obedience. 
deepen our love for Jesus and his commands tonight. And we do pray with the psalmist, search me, know me, my God. Know my heart, test and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. For we pray these things to you, our Father, through Christ the Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen.